And so this morning we are going to continue on in 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 36. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 36. If you were here last week, you know this is part two of a two-part message. So I'm going to give you a little bit of catch-up before we read some of what we read last week and then a little bit further into this passage. And so to catch you up where we were, there's, there's three main characters here. We've got Ahab, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and they have decided to join together in war to try to take back a piece of disputed land, Ramoth Gilead. But Jehoshaphat, being the, the godly of the two, decides, hey, we need to ask of the Lord. What, what is the Lord's will in this? Would the Lord have us to do this or not? And they bring together, by Ahab's calling, 400 false prophets that tell him what he already wants to hear. But there is one true prophet uh, supplied by the Lord to tell the truth, to speak clearly God's truth into this situation that the people might know what the Lord has to say about this. And what he says very clearly is that if they go up, it will result in disaster and the death of Ahab. And in the midst of this, we had this vision that Micaiah, the prophet, shares. It is a vision of the throne room of God calling for a spirit to entice Ahab into his death and that 400 prophets are going to go out and speak evil uh, and they are going to be deceived. And so this brings up a lot of difficult questions. We talked about two parts of looking at that last week and we're going to talk about two more parts to help us understand more of this this week. So I would ask you uh, to please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning in 1 Kings 22, 19 through 36. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 36. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing before him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you, Are you to entice him, and you shall succeed? Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. Verse 26. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. Verse 29, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random 
and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until, an ev- until at evening he died. And the blood of his wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So we see here, we're going to spend again most of our time this morning looking at this revelation of God, this throne room revelation, and how it does indeed work out to be true. And it does indeed work out to be the word of the Lord. But the two great questions that we struggle with through this revelation of what God is doing behind the scenes and the actions of humanity are these two great questions. One, is God in fact the author of evil? Is he its direct cause? And second, is God causing events to happen according to his will or does he just know what is going to happen but it is happening apart from his direct will? We're going to see this morning that the answer to the first question is an emphatic no, that God is not the author of evil, and that the second question, the answer is yes, that God is in fact causing his will to unfold in this world. And so these are deep things to discuss. Let's look at some more of them. Last week we looked at four points helping us to understand what is happening here. The first two we covered last week is that we should interpret less clear passages in the Old Testament by more clear passages in the New Testament. We talked about progressive revelation, God making more and more of himself known over time so that we can understand more of his actions and more of what he is doing. The second point we looked at was that God always speaks the truth and Satan always speaks lies being very clear with the categories that we have before us and what the Bible tells us about God and his speaking and what, God t- what the Bible tells us about Satan and his words. And that God is one who always speaks the truth and Satan is one who always speaks lies. And that there is no mixture of the two. And it's important as we go into the discussion today that we keep the boundary lines clearly drawn as to what we are talking about. So today we'll go into the third point of looking at this and trying to understand these two deep and difficult questions. And so the third point we'll look at today is this. God is not the one tempting us. God is not the one tempting us. And that we should not say, I am being tempted by God. And so I would ask you to turn with me this morning to James chapter 1. We don't often uh, bounce around, but we are going to look at two or three different scriptures this morning that have great bearing on this. And so if you would turn with me in the book of James, uh, to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we have a very important passage. And here in this passage, James is anticipating the very questions that we're asking today. That these questions are not new questions, and you're not the first person to ask these questions. And these questions have been rolled around and struggled with by those who have believed and trusted in God down through the ages. And so James speaks directly to some of these concerns in our hearts. And so I'm going to read for us James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, which says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin, 
and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we have a series of truths that we're taught about God in this very important passage. So the first is that you are wrong if you are saying, I am being tempted by God. So we should not say that. Because of what? The next truth is that God himself cannot be tempted with evil. And that's a very important reality. God himself cannot be tempted by evil. Why can God not be tempted by evil? Because God has no corruption in his heart. This goes back to what we talked about with point two last week, that God is pure and he is holy. And because of that, there is nothing in his character that desires evil things. And so when you put something evil before him, there is no temptation, there is no enticement to it. If someone puts before you something that you have no desire for, it is not a temptation to you. So think of some type of food that you have no interest in whatsoever, but other people love. And if somebody puts the biggest, best piece of that before you on a table, you just like not interested, like doesn't doesn't not just not interested at all. And we understand what that means. But another person could be very enticed by that, and you put that before them, and they're just hanging onto the table because it's all they can do to not reach out and grab it. But God has no evil, and in him there is no darkness, and there is no sin. And so when sin is put before him, he is not tempted by it. His nature is perfect and always desires and always chooses what is good. And so God himself cannot be tempted with evil. Then the last part of verse 13, he himself tempts no one. This is very personal language, and it's exactly what we see in uh, our passage from 1 Kings, that God himself tempts no one. And a way you can state this in another way is that God is not the tempter. What do we see in the early chapters of the book of Genesis? We see God and we see Satan. We see a tempter and one that is calling people away from temptation. It's the same thing here. We see one who steps forward that says, yes, I will go and be a deceiver because that's who I am and that's what I do. But God is not a tempter, and he himself tempts no one. If we go on to verse 14, another point. We are tempted by our own corrupted soul. So if we go back to the language of temptation and corruption, we do have a corrupt heart. We are naturally wicked. And we know that when something that is violent or greedy or immoral or selfish or proud or profane is put before us, various parts of that are going to be tempting to us. We would look at the situation and say, man, it would be so nice if I could just blow up on this person and scream and vent everything I want to say to them because I am so sick and tired of them. And it's tempting to just blah, blow up and let them have it. And it's tempting when you don't have something that you want in greed to go out and to get it by means that are sinful, whether it be whatever those means may be, that you get what you want because it is tempting to you. So we have corruption in our own heart. And when sinful things are put before us, they are tempting to us. Every one of us knows what our weaknesses are. And everyone knows the things that we are tempted by to enter into sin. And so apart from the saving work of God, we cannot resist what is in our own nature. I'm going to talk about this a, a little bit, but I would ask you to, to hang on. Because in, in January, I'm actually going to preach a whole sermon on the doctrine of regeneration. It's a very important doctrine. It's the doctrine of God changing our heart, which means we start out with a corrupt heart. In the Old Testament, it talks about it like a heart of stone. And Jeremiah says, the Lord God changes our heart to a heart of flesh. The way that Jesus talks about it in the New Testament is new birth. 
You must be born again. You start in spiritual death, and the Lord God must work that you might have spiritual life. And when our nature changes, what we desire changes. But when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot stop choosing sin and death because it is in our corrupt nature to choose it. If we look at a little bit different example of this, and we look at the natural world, and we look at nature, when you look at a cow, what does a cow eat? It eats grass because that's part of its nature. You never see a cow running around like a cheetah trying to chase down something and eat it because that's not its nature. Its nature is a herbivore. It eats grass. But lions eat meat. Lions don't graze and chew the cud because they are carnivores and they eat meat and it is their nature to do so. And so those of us that are in sin and death, those that have not come to salvation in Jesus Christ, their natures are dead in their trespasses and the sins. And they desire evil things and they will seek those things and it will corrupt them and destroy them. And so that's what we see going on in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a progression There's desire and rumination leading to sin. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the character of Cain in the Old Testament. Sin starting in the corruption of the heart and rolling around and ruminating in the heart. And then it breaks forth into action. And then action upon action upon action leads to death in both spiritual and then physical ways. And we see this in the life of Ahab. Ahab is one that continually is rebelling against the Lord. There's one time where he does repent for a period of time, but it does not stay, and it is not true, and it is not earnest in his life, and it gives forth, it gives way back to rebellion again and a desire for land and power and to be an even greater king and to put away the prophets of the Lord and doesn't care what the Lord says about anything. I'm going to be greater and more powerful than I was. And so we see this in the life of Ahab, and we know that we see it even in our own life, that when we give vent to our desires and we don't repent of our sins, we see the things, the evil things that are in our heart break forth into our life and begin to hurt others around us and destroy us. And if we continue to give vent to those things and continue to go down that track, it will indeed destroy us, both physically and spiritually which is exactly what we see in the life of Ahab in our passage today. So whether the sinful heart is appealed to by some evil spirit or whether the sinful heart is appealed to by the general evil of this world, either way, the heart is not being dragged down to death by God. Let me say that again. The heart is not being dragged down to death by God. Almighty God is doing the exact opposite. Almighty God is the Savior. He is the one that is constantly seeking to redeem. He is the one that is speaking life and truth into the situation. He is the one that is regenerating the heart and calling us away from evil. And so God is not the one tempting us. And we see that in this passage. Though there is the start of this thing is cloudy. We're going to talk about that in a moment. At the end of what works out, God is not the one tempting Ahab, and God is not the one that is tempting you when you feel temptation. The fourth part of understanding this is to look at what God does provide. And the fourth point is that God always provides a way of escape from temptation. 
God always provides a way of escape from temptation. So not only is God not tempting you, God is actively and providentially providing a way of escape that you might escape the temptation and that you might walk in a way of godliness. The key verse here is 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. So 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that which is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, so this is a very important passage. Let's walk through this and the truths that we see here as well. So verse 12 says this, let, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is a, a verse speaking to us about pride, speaking about, hey, I got this. Like, I've been doing this for a long time. I haven't messed up in that way in a long time, so I, I got this. I'm going to quit praying about this. I'm going to stop seeking the Lord for this because I'm good to go. Well, that is a position of pride and a position where you are depending upon yourself and not upon the Lord and not calling out to the Holy Spirit to help you in seeking to live a righteous life and you are guaranteed to get ready to fall. Why? Because pride comes before a fall. The Lord God would have us to live a life of dependence upon Him, that we would come to Him daily asking for, seeking the strength to flee from sin and temptation. We're asking for God's covering upon us, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment, but every way we are striving to cease evil and we are striving toward God. So those are two different types of striving, but every day we are striving in both of those ways to leave behind evil and to seek after and know and understand who God is. We are not walking in pride. So verse 13 says, no temptation is overtaking you except that which is common to man. This is really important. So what are the common temptations of humanity? There's pride and there's greed and there's jealousy and there's lust and despair and anger. When it's in your life, it feels very, very personal. Like, man, I'm, I, I think I'm probably the only one that's ever been this low in despair. I've ever been the only one that's this, this afraid or terrified of the circumstances that are around the corner or I'm the only one that has been bound up this hard in addiction but it's not true these are common temptations for everyone that is in this audience here today and people that have lived from from way back when and the people that will live in the world beyond us once we live and once we die why because human nature has not changed and the temptations that come to us are common temptations and so in the midst of that temptation, we must understand that God is not the tempter, but as it says here in this passage, God is faithful. And in these common temptations, the Lord God will provide a way of escape for you. It says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's a very powerful passage. And I hope you will dwell on that and think about that because what we should be doing in our time of great temptation, wherever we are in our lowness or our struggle, we should be looking, God, what's the, 
What's the way out of this? How do I not fail in this moment? What is the way of escape? And we will be able to find it as Christians as we seek. Because God is actively providing the way of escape. That's what this passage is saying. It's a providential action of God. It's not a happenstance opportunity. It's God opening the door for those that he has called into himself to be able to walk in righteousness and holiness. And so we see this in the life of Ahab and Micaiah. So God, even with an unbelieving king, is providing a way of escape. He doesn't leave it with just 400 false prophets and no word from the Lord. Always the Lord brings Elijah or some other person into the situation at the crucial point of rebellion to say, hey, this is God's will and you need to listen. I'm proclaiming what it is. Listen to what God would have you to do and go and do it. And every one of these people are always forceful. It's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It's this is God's will. And if you don't do it, it's going to result in condemnation for you. And so the problem with Ahab and with us is not a knowledge problem. The problem is a heart problem. That our heart wants evil, and we desire things that are wicked. And so we know what is right. It's an, it's an issue of the will. God, change my will. Change my heart that I might want and love and desire righteous things. Ahab had been scheming in his heart for this land. He wanted this land, and he had put together this conference and all this other stuff trying to get this piece of land, and he was going down that direction. And it didn't matter what prophets, any, any prophet said to him about it. He was going to get that piece of land. And so the plan in his heart causes him to sin. It gives birth to sin, and then that sin carries on, and it ends up leading to his death. And it is interesting because when we talk about the sovereign plans of God and God working out his will... In uh, verse 34 of 1 Kings 22, it's very clear. It says, as he's fighting at random, which means the, the, the literal translation of that is in his innocence, which means a person that's not really aiming at anything, they're just doink, and it goes, and where does it hit? It hits him right exactly where it needs to hit him that he might die. And so it leads to his death, and that is not an accident. The Lord clearly warned him, gave him every opportunity and every open door to not do this, send someone pleading all the way to prison for him not to do this, but he hardens his heart. And I tell you this morning that if you think you can harden your heart and go the way of evil and shut out the Lord and press out the people in your life that are calling for your repentance and are praying for you and are seeking that you turn back from evil and you shut those people out and you think it's not going to affect your life, you're wrong. It's going to lead to a cutting off of your relationship with the Lord, and it's going to eventually lead to your physical death. And if you die in rebellion against the Lord, it will lead to your eternal damnation. And so this is a very serious, serious thing. When people in your life are pleading with you to come after the Lord and to turn away from your evil and to turn away from the things that are destroying you, hear them. Understand that they are being sent by God as someone to help you escape temptation and they will be able to help you. So the Lord God is not the one tempting us, but he is the one that is providing a way of escape, seeking our redemption. And so there are some passages that I want to look at this morning that are probably not passages you've ever read this morning, but they're very important, and they're helpful to us in looking at and reconciling what we have going on here. 
They're both from the book of Ezekiel. Um, I've been reading lately in the book of Ezekiel, and it's just been fascinating to me how it has related to what we are talking about here this morning. So the first passage I'm going to read to you is from Ezekiel chapter 3. Uh, you can turn there if you want to. If not, I'm just going to read it to you. Ezekiel 3, 16 uh, through 21. In Ezekiel 3, 16 through 21 is, is basically a logic tree, okay? What is a logic tree? A logic tree is if I do this, then I have this option and this option. If I have these two options, if I go this way, then I can do this or I can do that. And if I go this other way, I can do this and do this. And depending on the series of decisions I make, what is the outcome going to be? And it's really fascinating to see God talk to Ezekiel and lay out the complete logic tree of every possible option as to what is going to happen if he either does or does not speak his word to the people. So God is saying, I'm giving you a word to say, Ezekiel. So now you're either going to say it or you're not going to say it. And if you say my word to the people, they're going to react this way or this way, and it keeps going down. So here, I'm going to read it for you. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. So the, the prophet or the minister, this is something that's very much on my heart. If I feel like I must tell the church this, and I don't do it, because I'm fearful of what you're going to think about me or how you're going to react, and I withhold what I know I should say to you, then I have a problem. I'm accountable for God for not saying that. So he says, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Verse 18, if I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Verse 19, but if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So that you've got this various, okay, I said something, they, they did not heed, they kept on in their wickedness, and they die in their sins. Verse 20, Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, so a person who was in the right way and they turn into wickedness, and I lay a stumbling block before them, he shall die because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sins and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Verse 21, but if you warn the righteous person not to sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning and you have delivered your soul and, he, and you will have delivered your soul. And so the best possible outcome is the last one. Where there's a word of the Lord spoken by someone in a prophetic way and then a person listens and acts in righteousness and they're both delivered. And that is what we are seeking. That is what the Lord desires. What we see over and over in the Old Testament this is the outcome that the Lord desires. Often in the Old Testament, we don't seem to, to look at the grace of God at work, but God is always seeking people to turn away from sin. He, as we're going to see here in a moment, he takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked, but he will be just. So in this situation, we see each and every one of the possible options outworking of someone speaking the truth and people reacting to that truth, and what is God's reaction to that? Finally, in verse 27, it says this, Thus says the Lord, He who will hear, let him hear. 
And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Very similar language to Jesus at the end of his, so many of his sermons where he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what is said. And so listen to what God is saying because he is not tempting you. He is calling you to salvation. He is calling you to repentance. I'd like to look at some considerations of what we have here in, in learning about God and about ourselves in these various truths. So the first is this. Our moral choices are real and have real life and death consequences. Sometimes when people talk about these deep things, they get so tangled up in talking about these things, especially in talking about the sovereignty of God, that they manage to talk themselves out of the fact that their real life choices have real consequences. But everywhere in the Bible, we see that your choices are real, and your real choices have real life or death consequences. And when we are looking at the choices that we have to make this afternoon, we need to understand that if we take that way of escape from temptation and we trust and seek in the Lord God, it will have real consequences of life and blessing in the way that we live. But if we turn away from the Lord, it will have real consequences of struggle and even unto death. A second consideration that's important here about God and ourselves and what we learn here this morning is that we are taught by Jesus himself in the Lord's Prayer, the last part of the Lord's Prayer, that we ought to pray to be delivered from temptation and evil. What does Jesus say? He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is very important. When we take hold of the truths that God is not tempting us, that God is supplying a way of escape for us, it is right and good and proper that we pray regularly God, deliver me from temptation and evil. Deliver me from the, the temptations that come upon me today. And there's a reason why it's in that pattern of prayer that God has given to us. We often confess our sins. We often pray for things we need. We often glorify God. But I would venture to guess that you much less frequently pray for God to deliver you from temptation than you ought to. Because if it's part of God's regular pattern for our prayers, that means that every day, we should be praying, God, deliver me from temptation and evil. And we're calling out to God. We're seeking that way of escape that we might live a righteous life. And that's a very important truth. The third truth that I would like to pull out as we consider these things is this. The justice of God is glorified in the just punishment of sin, but that God takes no pleasure in it. Let me say that again. The justice of God is glorified in the just punishment of sin, but that God takes no pleasure in it. What I mean by that is that every one of the attributes of God that are made known to us and are displayed bring glory to God. The justice of God glorifies God. We all understand the need for justice and the goodness of justice. A world with no justice is going to be a mess, and we understand that because we're created in the image of God. And so when God displays and acts in justice, in judging sin, he is glorified. However, he takes no pleasure in it. And let me read for you, because this is from, again, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, 18, 23, and 32. It goes to the desire of the Lord God to save and to redeem. And so what does he say in Ezekiel 18, 23? Again, calling the people back from their sin through Ezekiel the prophet. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn away 
uh, from this and live. In the last verse of the chapter, have I no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Constantly he is appealing to them, come away from your sin. I do not want to judge you. I have no desire. I take no pleasure in this. I want to see you repent of your sins and come to me. But if you will not do these things, then there will be judgment. And in his justice, he will be glorified. So the long-suffering patience of the Lord is displayed constantly in the Bible and that he is not quick to judgment. He is not quick to judge in the life of Ahab. He takes many, many years of unfolding, many, many years of his evil and wickedness and many years of this prophet and that prophet going to him and speaking to him and appealing to him and seeking him. And only in the very end does the Lord God finally bring justice and judgment into his life. And so if we reconsider our original questions, is God the author of evil? The answer is no, and I hope that some of the things that I've spoken to you will help you grasp what the Bible teaches about this and why it is that God does not speak evil, God is not evil, God does not tempt us, but God is supplying a way of escape. And we look at, is God causing events to happen according to his will? The answer is yes, because in the end, his purpose was for Ahab's reign to be over and his life to end, and he does. But how do we reconcile these things? How do, we, how do we see these two things as just or consistent? And I would say again, these are not new questions. These are not questions that are new to you today. They have been asked by people down through the ages. And again, I'll read to you from Ezekiel 18. Just listen. You say, the way of the Lord is not just don't we say that sometimes? Well, this can't be, this is just, this, I struggle with this. This does not seem just. The way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, and he shall surely live. He shall not die. This is the grace of God. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. This, is, this sounds just like the preaching of Jesus. Repent of your sins. Call out to the Lord and you will be forgiven of your sins. It's grace of God in the Old Testament and grace and mercy of God in the New Testament. And people will still go away and shake their fist at God and say, God is not just. And they will go and live in their wickedness and they will die in their wickedness. While the preacher or the prophet or Jesus himself or myself here today call out and plead to you to turn from your sins and receive the free grace of God that you might be forgiven of your sins and walk in life. And so repentance and grace, the scripture always comes back to this answer. 
We need to turn away from temptation and seek the mercy of Christ. Believe in the goodness of God. Walk by faith in the sovereign plans of God. We need to stop trying to be God and control circumstances that are outside of our control. We cannot control the world. We might try. You can't even control the circumstances in your own house. And so you much less can't control all the circumstances in this world. We've got to turn those things over to God. We've got to walk by faith, believing that he is in fact in control and that he is good. And at some point, we must stop trying to reconcile things that are beyond our capacity to reconcile. And before you accuse me of being oversimplistic, I, I would cause you to look towards science. So very often in this day and age, whether it be electrical engineering or space exploration or whatever you want to look at, it doesn't take long to read an article by a professional in any one of these fields where you have no idea what you're talking about anymore. You're like, I, I, don't, know what he, I don't know what he just said or she just said because this is way beyond like, what I understand when it comes to math or science or engineering or whatever. But it's interesting that in our day and age, when we reach that point of no longer being able to understand or reconcile the facts with science, we tend to do what? Believe that they're telling us the truth. And I don't understand it, but man, I see it. I see that electric car running. I see that spaceship taking off. I see the wonders of the universe happening in front of me. And, and we tend to believe it. But with God, when we reach a point of not being able to reconcile things, even though we see it happening right in front of us, we tend to do what? Disbelieve it. And say, oh, he must be lying. God must be a liar. What he's saying is not true. And why do we do that? Is it an information problem? No. It's a heart problem. Our heart is desperately wicked, and we tend towards not wanting to believe God. And we tend towards rebellion against God. And we tend towards shaking our fist at God. Even though we see the realities of everything I just said here this morning worked out and played out before us. And so I encourage you, Press in to know the Lord and understand Him more. But when you reach a place where you can affirm various Bible truths, but you cannot fully see how to reconcile those together, that you trust God. And this is what it means to walk by faith. And the further you walk down that road of faith, the more that you will see that God is true and right and good and just. And so we begin, we end where we started this morning, back in our passage in 1 Kings because we see the hardness of heart of Zedekiah, the false prophet, when the word of the Lord comes forth, what does Zedekiah do? He comes up and he, he slaps Micaiah across the face. There might be some of you here this morning that are angry with me for what I just said. And if you could, you'd come up here and slap me in the face because you don't believe that I'm telling you the truth. And the impact that it has in your life makes you angry. Ahab had the authority to get rid of this prophet, and he did. What did he do? He jailed him put him on reduced rations and said, I'm going to war anyway. And I appeal to you this morning. If you hear what I am saying and your heart is hard like this, and you say, as soon as I can get up and run out of this place, I'm going to go do whatever I want to do. I appeal to you, don't do it. Take the way of escape. Now is a time to turn away from your sins and to commit your heart to the Lord and to trust in him because the heart does not stay open to the Lord. We find that when we walk out of times where the Lord pricks our heart and takes hold of our conscience, that quickly our heart can be become hardened again. And so I encourage you this morning, 
If you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus as your Savior this morning that you might receive the grace of God and be forgiven of your sins and have new life and a new heart this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word. And we've covered a lot of territory this morning and I pray that you would help uh, each of us to understand what has been said here today and that we might walk away firmly holding on to the truths that God is good and that God does not tempt us, but that God supplies a way of escape and that we might see clearly who the enemy is and not be deceived by his plans and his workings. I pray, God, for each person this morning that does not know you as Savior. I pray for the salvation of each lost soul in this place today, that today they might put their faith and their trust and receive the grace of God, that they might go out with a new heart, a heart that is born again through the Spirit of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.